0: So good to have you here with us today. If you're in the room, you've already heard this twice, but if you're watching at home online, we've learned that sometimes people fast forward through the worship and the announcements to get to this part of the message, and you may not have heard it yet. So I'm sorry for everybody in the room who's already heard it twice, but today we were talking about intimacy in marriage. And so if you're watching at home with your kids and they are not old enough, or you haven't had this conversation before, trust me, now would be a good time to just go ahead and turn it off and say, oops, kids, we're going to do something else today. So last chance, we're jumping right in. So this weekend, I I decided to pick up a book. I'm really anxious about this message. So I picked up a book uh, called Holy Sexuality by a gentleman named Christopher Yuan. Uh, Christopher is a Christian uh, professor at Moody Bible College who struggles with what's called SSA, same-sex attraction. And um, he wrote a phenomenal book, and I read it. And a couple things that I'd note. Number one, uh, before we jump into today's message, um, I was deeply convicted in his book that we don't speak enough to the single people in our church. I don't know how or when to fix this. About one third of today's message will be directly for single people today. The rest will be about intimacy in general and in marriage. And um, I just want to say to my single brothers and sisters, we love you. Thank you for showing up for a series like this. You are no less important. Jesus is single. Uh, Paul was single. There is a critical place in God's kingdom for single people. You are not sanctified if you get married or better if you get married. And if you're single, you're worse or lesser than or secondary. And by no stretch of the imagination, um, there will be portions of today are just for you. So grace and love all over the place. Secondly, I accept that today's message is extremely awkward for everybody, especially me. And uh, But I feel like it's an important thing because no matter what conversation I'm in, I end up having a conversation about this topic in some way or another. Single people, married people, it doesn't matter. And we're looking at a series this fall, honestly, we're wrestling with it. I told you we want to do it. We feel the need to do it, but I don't, we're, we're trying to figure out what to do. How do we be helpful? We have no desire at Kingsway to be shock jock. We have no desire here to just get clicks on the internet. What we want to do is serve our people. We want to lead you closer to Jesus. We want to teach you what the Bible says. And so with that in mind, I want to pray. And then we're just going to open up God's word and let it challenge us, encourage us, speak to us, rebuke us, do all the things that God's word does to transform us in the likeness of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. It is so beautiful. It's so beautiful. God, as we're gonna look at some texts today, some texts many of us have never even heard or considered before. We're gonna look at them. We're gonna look at them deep. We're gonna try to apply them to ourselves. And I'm just praying right now the Holy Spirit would move in this place, Father. Stir in our hearts. God, some of us need called back into repentance to walk with you again. Some of us don't know you. We need a relationship with Jesus. And some of you just need to start honoring our spouses with our bodies. Some of us are single and we need to make commitments today to be faithful, whatever it might be, Father. I pray today you'd stir in our hearts, speak to our lives and begin to do the work that only you could do. And so, Lord, we pray that you would break us of our will, our own selfish desires, and may we surrender to you. In Jesus' name, all God's people say, amen. All right, marriage, marriage, Wow to love. the purpose of marriage. I know. Anyway, some of you are like, what's that old guy talking about? Marriage represents complementary oneness. Complementary oneness. So remember, it says, <clears throat> the two, we'll get to this, don't put the passage up yet, the two will become one flesh. When God made Adam and Eve, here's Bible 101, he took the dirt, fashioned it into Adam. God was, or Adam was made out of the ground, out of the dirt. However, Eve was not made out of the dirt. Once Adam realized he was alone and God said, this is not good. And Adam realized this is not good. God took from Adam out of his side and made Eve. That's important. Because if he had taken out of Adam's head, Eve would have been over Adam. If he had taken out of Adam's feet, Eve would have been under Adam. But she was created out of Adam, out of his side, because she was equal to him. You guys remember the famous Tom Cruise line? You complete me. Marriage was never intended to complete you. Marriage was not supposed to be two halves becoming a whole, it's supposed to reflect God and somehow into this earth, we'll talk more about this in a moment, it was supposed to be one whole person with one whole person creating a whole person. You're like, that's terrible math. Well, my family's from Kentucky. So anyway, they're in-laws, I'm just kidding. This is Bible math. I'm joking if you're from Kentucky, I'm sorry. I'm gonna need a lot of grace today, all right? But I'm being serious about this part. If you are single and you're looking for somebody else to complete you, if you are married and you are in desperate need of something and you're looking for the other person to complete you, then you have your hope misguided. God intends for you to be a whole person in him bringing that into the marriage relationship and then them being a whole person in him and bringing that into a marriage relationship of the two together makes something more beautiful, more full, more complete, the two are one. In fact, here it is at Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. The one flesh concept is so big, so big. We're going to look at it a lot today. But it permeates the entire scriptures from beginning all the way to end, literally all the way to the book of Revelation. In fact, it's been said that the only questions that pastors get are the um, questions about sex, questions about the second coming, and will there be sex in the second coming? And we're going to actually deal with that a little bit today. Some of you think I'm funnier than others do, but that's fine. I'm used to it. All right. Anyway, this is critical because this one flesh concept is absolutely about sex. But if you think it's only about sex, then you're missing the boat. We live in a sex-saturated culture, perhaps one of the most sex-saturated cultures in the history of the world. It permeates, there's messages everywhere. They're on your phone, they're on the internet, your TV, radio, they're everywhere, and they're coming at you 90 miles an hour all the time inundating your heart, your mind, your kids, your lives, and you feel it and you know it, but what you don't always see is that you've been influenced by it, and it affects the way that you see God and you see others. And what I want to do today is we're going to go deep dive into scriptures across the Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. You may not know where they're all located, but you need to know right now. We're starting in Genesis and we're going to talk about the end, even though we're going to focus right there in the middle section, some of Proverbs, some in the New Testament. And we're just looking at a lot of stuff because I want you to know what the Bible says about the subject so that God can begin to work in you and stir in you and replace lies with truth. The one flesh Is so much bigger than sex. In premarital counseling, I tell couples all the time, you need to do everything you can to become one. Don't have two bank accounts. Don't have separate houses. Don't have separate bedrooms. Do whatever you can to create one flesh, but it is also very much about sex. In fact, the very rules that God gave to Adam and Eve was to work the ground, work the earth, and to be fruitful and multiply. That means make more, make babies, make children, make more images of God and to fill the earth. Sex was created to facilitate the bond of oneness. Facilitate it. It was created to bring these two people together into an intimate oneness. And it was great. It wor- at first it worked. In fact, the very next verse we're told in Genesis chapter two is the very next verse says, and they were both naked and had no shame. There was something about their relationship. There was nothing between them to say, I'm not good enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't measure up in some form or fashion. It wasn't about performance. It wasn't about looks. There was no sin in the world. Adam never did anything to hurt or offend Eve. Eve never did anything to hurt or offend Adam. There was a beautiful relationship between them with God, with each other. It was wonderful. It didn't stay that way very long, but it was good at the beginning. This one flesh idea carries consistently, I said, throughout the scriptures. In fact, last week we looked at this passage, Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says this, verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become, say it with me, one flesh. Wow. Where did he get that from? Well, Paul's reading his Bible. Paul's Bible consisted of the 27 Old Testament books. I didn't do that right. The 39 Old Testament books. He... He's reading his Bible and he's studying Genesis and he's going, hey, look, there's something going on here. And then the very next verse, he blows all our minds and he says this: this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Wait a minute, what? I thought you were talking about Adam and Eve and marital bliss and sex and all that stuff. What do you mean you're talking about Christ and the church? Exactly. Don't miss this. This is huge, okay? This one has been kind of blowing my mind. I've always known it. I decided to deep dive and look into it this week. So I'm just gonna throw it out there as like a grenade. You can hold onto it, let it blow up your own mind and heart as you ponder and meditate on the things of God. Ready? But here it is. Marriage is a signpost of what is to come. It's not the real thing. So it's a gift here on the earth, but it won't last forever. It'll only last for a little bit. There's a story. Jesus is approached by the Sadducees. Now, there are all these religious teachers at Jesus' day. Sadducees are one of the religious teaching groups. And the Sadducees believe many things different than the Pharisees, but the Sadducees don't believe one of the things, they don't believe in a resurrection from the dead. They try to trap Jesus with a question like this. Now, the context before I tell you what they ask Jesus is I gotta set the ground level. So in the Old Testament, God created a number of rules. God does this all over the Bible where he does what we call concession. He accepts that the world is a certain way and so he concedes, fine, I'm gonna put a rule in place that's the best that we have on this side of heaven where sin is reigning on the earth. And one of the rules is if a woman and a man marry and the husband dies then the man, if he has a brother, excuse me, the closest male next kin, brother or then cousin or whatever, father, is to take her as a wife, help her get pregnant so that his land inheritance would be passed down through the male lineage from generation to generation. This is a really big deal. In fact, there's a story in the Old Testament of a guy named Onan who is supposed to do this, but instead of going in and getting her pregnant, he ends up spilling his seed on the ground. That's what the Bible says. You can figure out what happened from there. And God rebukes him because what he did was evil. He took advantage of the pleasure of the moment, but he didn't fulfill the marital duties because his brother had died. Are you with me? So the Sadducees come to Jesus now and they want to test him. And they say, all right, Jesus, there's a man. And he's married to a woman and he dies. And so the next brother, his brother comes along and marries the woman and he dies. And the next brother comes along and marries the woman and he dies. Seven of these go by. Jesus, if there's a resurrection, who will she be married to in heaven? What's fascinating is this, Jesus says this. I don't have this on the screen for you, but Jesus says, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. That's us, the people of this age. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come And the resurrection from the dead, they're neither going to marry or be given in marriage. They can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. You're like, what does that mean, Jesus? Well, what it tells us is marriage is a gift this side of heaven, but it won't last forever. And this crushes my wife, because she married this amazing guy, and she's like, what? What? Here's the bigger point. Marriage is supposed to point us to Jesus somehow. So look at this. Paul's sitting here going, a man's gonna leave his father, mother's gonna be united to his wife. And oh, by the way, that's really about Jesus in the church. And you go, I am so confused by your logic. Peter actually says this about Paul in the New Testament. Sometimes Paul's really confusing, but you should listen to him because he's got stuff to say from God. Yeah, I get it, right? But this one's not as hard to understand. So what Paul's riffing off of here is he's saying, Jesus represents the husband. The church represents the bride. So again, in Ephesians 5, so husbands, you do for your bride everything Jesus does for the church. You love her, you protect her, you care for her, you become one with her, you provide for her, but there's something bigger going on. Ah. This is the thing that's getting me lately, and I don't know how to make this clear, but I'm pondering this, okay? This is what's getting me. My wife is amazing, and I love her with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, but she won't be my wife in heaven. Because Jesus, whatever she's meeting the needs in me here now, Jesus is supposed to be meeting that need and will meet it eternally. I won't need her. She won't need me anymore in heaven because I'll have him fully and completely. So all of you who are single, real quick, just one application for this for you is you don't need another person. You're one whole person and one whole person, right? In marriage, you don't need another person. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be married. It just means you don't need it because you have Jesus in you now. That's the goal. So how did this whole marriage thing become so broken, especially in the area of sexuality? Because can we all agree for a minute, like sex is kind of messed up in our world. Well, sexuality in our world is broken, but listen, it's not beyond redemption. What I wanna do is I wanna take you walk through just a few passages, and there are so many I don't have time for, but I just wanna show you, the Bible is neither prude nor crude. It's neither prudish nor crudish, I made that up, when it comes to marriage and sexuality. But what the Bible does is it talks very openly about what it should look like, what it's healthy, what it will look like, but it often does it in language that's poetic or, or when I say hidden, you kind of gotta go, what's that mean? And it's doing it because it doesn't wanna be crude. It doesn't wanna be found. Now, there are some passages, I'm not gonna have time for today, that are very in your face, Especially when God is rebuking Israel, and He gets very, very sexually graphic in His rebuke of them. But today's text, I just want to show you the prude crude principle. The Bible's open about these things, but it's not inappropriate about these things. I want you to ponder this as you talk about the subject. Proverbs chapter five, verse fifteen. Now, this came because in January I did what I call the Proverbs Challenge. There are thirty-one proverbs in the book of Proverbs. That's a little redundant. There's thirty-one proverbs. If you read, there's 31 days in a month, you could literally read one proverb a day. So what I did is I read one a day, and then each day I would go back and read the one before, and then I'd read ahead one. So I was always reading like two to three a day every day, and I kept reading them. There's so much in the book of Proverbs about intimacy, purity, sexuality. It's unbelievable. You should try this sometime. And I came across these. I thought, I need to share this with my church. Here's what it says, Proverbs chapter five, verse 15. Now, the whole context of Proverbs five is you've got Solomon, who is either giving wisdom to all of us as like sons and daughters, or specifically Solomon has one of his sons in mind. We aren't 100% sure. And he's trying to share wisdom with him. In Proverbs 5, he's saying, don't commit adultery. Don't chase after that woman. Her lips drip of honey, but it's really poison. And it will crush you. For years, the church talked about men pursuing women and women, you know, be pure and don't give in and all those things. It's both. The Bible says it's both. Men, you need to be pure. Women, you need to be pure. There's a right time and a right place. Do not give in to the seductive nature of the other person. But here in verse 15, he says this, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? And you go, and this is why I don't read my Bible. It didn't make any sense to me. This is so easy if you go read Proverbs 5. I'm not making anything up. The springs is referring to the thing that comes out of a man in intimate moments. Good enough? Clear enough? Now what in the heck is it saying? Okay, well, he's simply trying to say in a non-crude fashion, he's trying to say, don't go share that with everybody. Ooh, that's a really cool passage now when you read it. Don't let it overflow in the streets. He's not talking clearly. You'll get arrested and thrown in prison. Don't do that. (laughs) He is talking about, don't go just give this away to anybody and everybody. The public squares. Don't just give this away. It's a gift to be given in one place. Well, where is that place? Look at the next verse. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Where is it supposed to be shared? with your wife. This is powerful stuff, right? All of a sudden you're like, wow, that Bible thing's cooler than I ever thought it was because it talks about the things that are relevant. May God bless this thing coming out of you men. May you be blessed and multiply in the earth, but give it away to one committed person, The wife of your youth. This is probably now his son, who's older in years, who's maybe being tempted to not stay faithful to the vows to the wife of his youth, and he's thinking, you know what? I bet I'd be happier over there doing this with someone else. And he's like, don't do that. In fact, go read all of Proverbs five. Whew, don't do that because you know what happens if you do that? Her husband's going to come after you, and it ain't going to be good for you. It's all in the Bible. It's not going to go well for you. It'll ruin your life. And then it goes on in verse 19, and he says, a loving doe. A graceful dear, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? Again, if this is Solomon's son, and he's been married a few years now, and maybe he's turning his eye away from his bride to another woman, he's reminding him, look, she may not look the same as she used to look. She might've aged, she might be a little different. Her body might've changed shape a little. she's a loving doe, a graceful deer. See her for her innocence and her beauty, for what she is, no longer what she isn't. And may her body continue to satisfy your desires. May your desires be only for her. Why, my son, would you change your desire and give it to somebody who's not your wife? Why would you give it to a woman who chases after men all the time when you've got a loving doe, a graceful deer right here in front of you? See, sometimes we just need that little shift in our thinking. By the way, it's not just women to men. It goes both directions. It's not just men to women. It's women to men. The Songs of Solomon, as I told you, I think it was last week, um, is a story about a couple who meet, kind of date and go through this betrothal period. They get married, That they consummate the marriage. There's like chapter two about that. And then they have this marriage afterwards. And I also believe allegorically, it's also about Jesus in the church. And again, how do these two things play out? It's a beautiful thing. Today's not about that, but there is a passage. I think it's songs of Solomon chapter five, verse 14. And I'll just say this. The Hebrew writers are not 100% sure what to do with it. Go read your commentaries. Most English translations give you the cleanest, most sanitized version. Go read your commentaries and they'll tell you this is not as clean or sanitized as we like. In context, she's kind of starting at the top of his head and she finds herself around his abdomen and she starts to describe something firm and ivory and it's um, bedazzled with sapphires. And everybody who re- writes on it goes, yeah, uh, something's up here. Um, and so most English translations will say it's his abdomen. She's talking about his abdomen. Okay, we'll move on. So the point is, it's neither prude nor crude. It's in beautiful poetic language that she's looking at his body and going, this is nice. This is beautiful. Well done, God. Well done. First Corinthians, everybody's uncomfortable now? Good, we'll move on. First Corinthians <laughs> chapter six. Now we're going to spend some time on Corinthians today because this is in the New Testament. Church, the, the city of Corinth, I've told you this before, was a, 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 a seaport. So men would travel from other places on ships, and they'd bring all the stuff in, and they'd make a ton of money when they got on the land selling stuff to the people in Corinth. Then they'd buy goods in Corinth and go back in at sea and go back to wherever they were coming from. So you've got these men coming into port, and they've been at sea for a long time, and uh, they've got money to spend. And there's a, a temple to one of the false goddesses of the ancient Greco-Roman world, the pantheon of gods. And I, can't, I always forget which one it is. I can't remember if it's Athena or Diana, which one it is. But anyway, um, they would go into there, and they were temple prostitutes. And these women would work the streets. And so when business was slow, they would send them down actually to go into the streets to find men to bring up and they would have these massive orgies in the temple. Now the church is taking hold in Corinth. The church of Jesus Christ is birthing there and it's, it's becoming this beautiful thing, but the people are having a hard time going, well, I used to do this all the time. Like when my wife and I aren't connecting, I just go up there and do that. And so some people are still doing that. So Paul writes in uh, first Corinthians chapter six, he says this, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? shall i then take the members of christ and unite them with a prostitute never what's going on here first of all when i was a young man and i read this i went oh this passage doesn't apply to me because i've never been with a prostitute nor do i desire to be with one so therefore it doesn't apply to me and if that's what you're thinking in your mind then then you are not understanding what paul's getting to the bigger point of what paul's getting to it has nothing to do with whether you paid for it or not by the way if you take somebody out to dinner and you think they owe you something what does that mean We're gonna leave that one there and keep moving. So what Paul is trying to get to is, do you not realize when you come to Jesus Christ, you are accepting the fact that you are going to face judgment one day before a holy God and he hates sin. And he calls sex outside of marriage, sin. But when he loves you so much that when he died on a cross and he rose from the dead, (coughs) excuse me, he gave you life. Your body is now not your own. It belongs to him. So don't take what belongs to him and unite it to something else that he doesn't intend for it as if it's no big deal. He goes on in the next verse, verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Do you see it again? Again, it's all over the scriptures. The whole idea here, Paul's reading Genesis again. He's like, God created this thing to be a gift that would bring two people together. And then his advice Listen, if you're struggling with all this, you're like, but man, I've got needs. First of all, let's stop there for a second. Sex is not a need. It is a strong desire. It is not a need. You can actually go a day without sex and you won't die. You can go a week, a month, a year. You could actually go a lifetime and I promise you won't die from that. There are all kinds of urban legends about what's gonna happen to your body. Uh-uh. They're all lies. There are people who are single. Jesus died at 33 years old and never had sex. You can make it in a lifetime without it. Food, you need food. Drink, you need water. Air, not gonna happen. Sex won't kill you. All right? So now we gotta put these things in context. So the what is the purpose of it? It's to bring two people together as one. So what does Paul say next? He says, "Look, flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins of persecution are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body." What is he saying here? This one is different, and you know it, right? Have you ever been dating somebody and you guys got sexually active, and then you had to break up for whatever reason? Being there's just some reason just didn't work out. Things were going sideways. You ever had that happen? And when you did, it felt like a part of you was dying. You were just having a really hard time letting go. Even though everything logically, you're like, this is, it's time for this thing to end. Why? Because something became one when you gave yourself to them that wasn't supposed to be for them. You ever notice for you married couples that when you guys are clicking, intimacy is happening? I don't just mean sex. I mean, intimacy is happening. You ever notice the safeness, the proximity, the closeness, the way you feel towards each other, and when it's not, you ever notice the distance and the fighting and the arguing that occurs? There's something about this that is deeply spiritual. Are you with me? In fact, I think it was Charles Swindoll, a famous pastor once said about this text, he said, this is the closest that Satan can get to attacking God. Because now that you as a Christian are a temple of the Holy Spirit, God lives inside you. If he can get you to sin sexually, it's the closest he can get to hurting God. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think it's part kind of like what Paul's trying to get to here. There was a guy, it's probably my favorite marriage book, but it's a little bit heady. It's not just like easy, like three-step kind of thing. Like, it's a heady book. But it's by a guy named Timothy Keller, pastor in New York, Presbyterian Church. And Tim Keller wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And he's got a chapter in there that's all about sex. And I went and reread it this week because it was just a good read Highly recommend it. But he has this great little quote I pulled out for you guys. It says this. If sex is a method that God invented to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally, physically Joined. Let's just stop on this one for a second. How could I numb the original impulse? Well, people do this all the time by having sex over and over and over again with people who are not their spouse. And they just become one, 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 one. All of a sudden, it loses what it's supposed to do. The other way people do this all the time, honestly, is through pornography. And all of a sudden, I I constantly numb my body so that it doesn't quite come alive the way it used to in the presence of the person God intended for it to come alive with. Moving on, Tim Keller says, in the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say something, some, say extravagant things like, I'll always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself very quickly feeling marriage like ties, feeling that the other person has obligations to you, but that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility even to call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness. If two people are having sex but are not married, it makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of the feeling of having somehow connected themselves. So then what do we do about it? Single people, this would be good for you to just listen into. in case the day would ever come where you're married again. Everything I've said is applied to both categories. But what happens is at the end of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is talking, well, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's talking about sin in the church related to sexual immorality. Chapter 6, he's rebuking people from just giving it away to everybody, spilling it in the streets. But in chapter 7, see, in the first six chapters of Corinthians, he's been addressing stuff that he's hearing about through people reporting to him, and he's writing to the church Corinth that's saying, stop, 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 stop. Chapter seven, though, now he's getting questions from the church to him, and he's giving advice. Hey, how do we deal with these things? He's like, all right, now let's deal with it. So in chapter seven, verse one, it says this, now for the matters you wrote about. So this is a letter going back to them to answer questions he's receiving. You guys wanted to know what I think about this. I'm an apostle. I have the authority of God. Here's what I say. He says this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Notice the quotations. So what's going on apparently in the church in Corinth is people are celebrating the fact that Jesus and marriage are somehow connected together, and that one day there won't be a need for marriage anymore. So you've got married couples going, "Well, we don't need sex anymore. We don't need to be intimate with each other anymore because it's not important anymore." So it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with his with his wife with a woman, right? They're celebrating this. Yes, withhold. And so you got all these people going, "I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm working really hard at this." But then Paul says, "Wait a minute. But since." Sexual immorality is occurring. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife. Notice who it's with. His wife and only his wife. And each woman with her own husband. Who is it with? Her husband, not anybody else. Okay, I wanna, after I read each of these passages, I'm gonna come back and say, hey, here's how I want you to think about this, okay? Here's how I want you to think about this. I want you to think about... Commitment and covenant, and not quick. Let me unpack that. Commitment. If you are not ready to give your life to the other person, remember, when you get married, at least in a Christian wedding, we'll say for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, health till death do us part. Now, I use different phrases because some people like to modernize that. That's fine. The whole idea here is you understand that I'm with you to the end, baby, no matter what happens next. I ain't going anywhere. I'm not quitting on you. I'm in it to win it. Till one of us dies or both of us dies, I'm your partner. There's a commitment to this. But also a covenant. As I said in one of the messages in the series, so you got the groom here and the bride here, and when I'm doing the wedding, I'm here, and I represent God. Now, I realize I joke all the time. I'm a little shorter than he is, but I represent God in a a wedding. So what I make the couples do when I do it is they give a vow to each other, but they also give a promise to God. And this is so important because when you do that, I'm telling my wife, my fiance, wife-to-be, hey, baby, yes, I love you for better, worse, richer, poor, sickness, and health, but I tell you what, if you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I'm out. No, 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 no. If you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I told God I'm with it. I'm not going anywhere I'm promising you, God, I'm going to hold up my end of the deal even when they don't. And that's important because as you start to think about sex, if you're not ready to make that kind of commitment, if you're not ready to hold a covenant before God, then don't settle for the quick thing. And I'm not talking about speed in marriage. Okay. That's okay. That's a whole different conversation for another day. Sometimes it could be faster than others. I'm talking about, nobody thought that was funny. Nobody? Was it too far? All right, we'll move on. I'm talking about don't Take the easy route, especially single people. Don't seek to satisfy an urge because the urge without the commitment and the covenant will not get you where you want to be, the purpose that God created it for. Let's read what Paul says next. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty. Do you know what marital duty is? It's more than sex, but it's at least sex. So to fulfill his marital duty to his wife. I know this will be hard for you to imagine, but there are men who do not do this for their wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Before we get to the next part, let's just unpack this. So this sentence summarizes everything, and then Paul's gonna repeat himself. First to the wives, then to the husbands. But listen, when you make this covenant commitment relationship, you are promising the other person that I will meet your needs. I will care for you. There's a commitment here. Are you with me? The very next thing he says lays the foundation. The wife does not have authority over her own body. That doesn't fly in America today. Oh, no, you didn't. I don't know who you think you are, pastor. A man to come and tell me that I don't have authority over my body. Oh, no, he didn't. Listen, 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 listen. Men have abused this. Men have abused this. And women, if you're in a physically, emotionally, sexually, verbally abusive relationship, that is not what I or Paul is saying. It's not. This is a mutual oneness where a man loves and adores and cares for and protects and serves and honors and cherishes his wife. And he lets her know she's valuable and precious and adored and safe. He doesn't demand and boss around and abuse. It's not what we're talking about. And in that situation, he's saying, wives, don't consider your body your own. Consider it a gift to give to him. Yield your maybe wants for his. But then he goes on and he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. So I'll just make a few very clear, but I'll just make some applications. Somebody go walk away going, I don't know what to do with that. This may mean at times you need to be intimate when you're not in the mood. And at the same time, this may mean there are gonna be seasons of life where you're not even gonna ask for it. I meet with couples to do premarital counseling occasionally, and I was just recently saying to one couple, listen, you want him to be able to wait until the wedding day before you guys are intimate again. You want that. You know why you want that? Because if he can't make it these months between now and then... How is he gonna make it later on when you're pregnant in those last 30 days and then the whatever, 60, 90, 120 days, how long it takes before your body is healed and ready again to be intimate again? You're gonna need some time in there. And if he can't control himself for a few months now, what's gonna make you think then he's gonna be faithful to you? Men, how dare you abuse a text like this and push it on to your spouse when she may have some physical, emotional, relational something going on and she needs your support and love to work through it. But the same goes the other direction. But wives, your body is not your own. It belongs to him. Husbands, your body is not your own. It is your job, men, when you travel out of town or she travels out of town and you're alone to control your thoughts and your minds and what you're looking at on the internet to make sure that your affections stay focused on her. And will this be difficult at times? Darn right it will be. We are sexual beings created by God. It is a gift, a good gift, but I tell you what, it's hard, it's complicated, it's difficult. I was listening to a phenomenal podcast, one of my favorite podcasts the other day, and they were talking about relationships, and just out of nowhere, one of the podcasters, Christian podcast, one of the podcasters said something like, yeah, someday I can't wait until I get to heaven and go, God, why did you make relationships between men and women so hard? And I thought, I wonder if he's having a fight with his wife right now. Everybody can relate with that honest one-liner statement. I wonder if his wife felt valued by that. You know, but it's true, isn't it? It's difficult. It's difficult. So here's my encouragement to you. I want you to think about service and not selfish. How do I serve the needs of my spouse? Again, needs, okay, let's take needs out. How do I serve the wants of my spouse while also holding my spouse accountable to saying, well, I want it, you know, 20 times a day every day. It's not realistic, it's not healthy, it's not good. But how do I not be selfish with my body? That goes both ways, husbands and wives. How do I be more loving? How do I serve this person and what they need? And oh, by the way, and we'll get to this more in just a moment, this would revolutionize your time in the bedroom if you made the time of intimacy in marriage about serving and not selfish. How do I come into this moment accepting? Men, my rule, my men, my rule is always, you put them first. Moving on. First Corinthians chapter 7 verse 5. Gosh, am I going to have a job after this? Verse 5. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. <clears throat> okay, so this one's pretty easy to understand, but this is the critical thing right here. Mutual consent. You know what that means? A really hard, vulnerable, honest, and open conversation needs to take place. And it's really hard to do. I used to think this was hard for men to do because men struggle with being vulnerable. And the the more women I know and the better I get to know my wife, this is hard for women too. There's nothing in the world that will quite make you feel insecure like the bedroom. We call it mood lighting for a reason. I really just think it's to hide that we don't look like we're, you know, 19 anymore, right? (laughs) In all seriousness, what Paul is saying is make sure that you are being together on a regular basis. How regular is regular? I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I know what different Christian leaders would say, but without knowing those Christian leaders, some of them may have a sinfully unhealthy worship of sex. And so I don't know how to repeat them. I know this, it's gonna be different for everybody, but it's gonna come through conversation. It's gonna take you looking at your spouse and saying, you know what I need more? I need to know that you think I'm beautiful. I need to know that you care. I need to know that your car or your sports or your hobbies or your friends or your music isn't more important than me. And it might take him saying, I'm trying to be faithful to you. I wanna be faithful to you, but when we're not connecting, this makes it really difficult for me. My body feels it. Recently, I had a man tell me, and I thought this was so profound. He said, you know what? I know my wife wants to be wanted and wants to be pursued, and she wants to be, you know, it's like the whole microwave versus the slow cooker thing. Like, I know that. He goes, but you know what? I want to feel wanted too. I thought that was so, such a profound, humble, and I was like, have you told her that? And he's like, no. And I was like, you need to tell her. I want to feel desirable also. Because I think most men would say that. Like, I want to know that you still want me. So my little piece of advice here is I want you to think mutual pleasure and procreation. That's why God created sex. Procreation, we're making more. If you're not ready to make more, like when you're single, that's one great example you're not ready to have sex because part of the purpose is to make more. But then mutual pleasure, mutual pleasure. It's not just about me, it's about us. And I'm always gonna put your needs above my own but it's not about performance in that book, meeting marriage, Timothy Keller, I told you about so good chapter on sex. I can say this cause he put it in a book, but he said he and his wife struggled early in their marriage. Like many people do, by the way, he struggled hard because he um, focused way too much on performance. So if it wasn't mutually pleasurable, then he felt like a failure. And then she felt like she was a failure because it wasn't mutually pleasurable. And it took years for them to work through it and think through it and talk through it and figure it out and to let some of it go and let it be about serving each other and loving each other and caring for each other. Such a good chapter if you're looking for a chapter to give you some wisdom on this subject. But the goal of this is not to focus on performance, it's to focus on procreation and to focus on the other person. All right, now the last thing I wanna show you before we end in prayer. First Corinthians chapter six, seven, verse six. The very next verse, the very thing Paul says is, I say this as a concession, not as a command. Why is that important? It's like Paul is acknowledging, look, he actually goes on the very next verses, the very next verses after this, he goes on and he says, I wish all of you could be like me. Paul's single. He's like, this isn't a struggle for me. I've got a different set of struggles. I think we actually read in, in Corinthians, it's about pride, but that's another conversation for another day. He's like, I have other struggles. This just isn't my struggle. In fact, he says that everybody's got a different gift. My gift is this isn't a temptation for me. I love that. I think that's so powerful because I wish everybody could be single. I wish everybody could just serve the Lord full time. I wish everybody wasn't being struggled with this, but I accept the fact that it is real and people do feel tempted and it is a struggle. And so I'm giving you this, not as a command, you must do this, but as a concession, love your spouse. Husbands, let me talk to you directly for a minute. I'm gonna look right at the camera. Husbands, you will be God's greatest weapon in your wife's life. When she feels beat down and insecure and no longer beautiful and not enough, and she doesn't measure up, and she's not sure, you could be the greatest weapon from God in her life against Satan. You could tell her how special she is how beautiful she is and celebrate the great things about her. Wives, you could be God's weapon against the enemy in your husband's life. When he's feeling beat up by the world and he's feeling insecure and he's feeling tempted and his flesh is crying out to be fed, you can help come alongside him and say, I still love you, you're still important to me, you still got it, baby. And what would happen if we were to look at marriage as this beautiful thing, this mutual oneness of not two halves, but two wholes coming together to make something more beautiful. Now your mission, should you choose to accept it? Nine months from now, our kids' ministry Here's my serious challenge, right? A serious challenge. It's not about that. I said, you would sit down with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you're single and you would draw a new boundary line in the sand and you would say to them, this is now my boundary. I cannot cross this line. And if that means you leave me, it's okay because you never completed me in the first place. Married couples, it's time to sit down and have a very hard but intimate conversation. About what's working and what's not working, and why you feel the way you feel. What do you need more of? And then respond in love and kind to the other. Don't get defensive. Don't yell. Go in and just say, I need to know better. I need to know better how to love you and serve you because we're practicing heaven on earth. Can I just pray over you guys? I love you. Thank you for giving me grace. If I offended anybody today, please forgive me. Some of my jokes, I know, sometimes they come off my head and they don't always come out the way I mean them to. Um, I love you. Let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, ah, this is hard stuff, God, but it's needed stuff. It's stuff that we all need to talk about. It's real and it's in your word, God. And I didn't make up that stuff. It's in your word, God. So we thank you for the gift of intimacy. We thank you. But God, intimacy is so much bigger than the topic of sex. So God, I pray for all of us. I pray for our single brothers and sisters watching right here, right now. I pray that you would help them to be strong and bold, Father, courageous, drawing boundary lines the world wouldn't draw and let people mock them if they do, so be it. You be their strength, Father. You be, their, you be, you be the one that goes before them and the one that comes behind them. You hem them in, Father. You guard them. You protect them. Don't let them buy the lies the enemy wants to whisper. And if that means the other person walks, so be it, Father, may they walk with you. And God, I pray for our married couples. May this message give some sort of conviction or encouragement or challenge. God, I pray more than everybody going out and scheduling a date night. God, I pray a conversation would take place, a really good, hard, open, honest, vulnerable, encouraging, not rebuking, just an encouraging conversation where the truth is out there and the truth sets us free, Father. And I pray for your spirit to reign here in this church. We love you. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen.